Hey, welcome to another episode of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm here with my frequent collaborator, Peter Kadzis. Frequent? I thought I'm your regular collaborator. You are, you are, you are. We're also here with Mike Dean, WGBH News' State House correspondent, and Katie Lannon, who is a reporter for State House News Service. Thank you both for being here. And Mike, since Peter wouldn't do it, uh, can I get you to... To name and describe this place that we're in, because again, for yes, me, this is a maiden voyage. I should thank you guys for coming to me because you were in the state house studio here uh, on Beacon Hill, the WGBH palatial basement studio. It is the uh, McNicholas uh, Media Room. That's right. It's, it's on the Kevin yeah, Nicholas. Kevin, Kevin McNicholas, the Kevin um, Nicholas, yeah. longtime radio reporter, freelance radio reporter, and worked for I think every station in New England at one point or another. Um, died a few years ago when this uh, this was his, his old office um, with a number of other old broadcast journalists, and that's only named it after him. Um, the speaker actually helped out with that when, uh, oh, I didn't when he know passed. That. Yep. All right. Peter and I wanted to come down here to talk with you two about whether there is or is not, with leadership in flux and various other things going on, whether there is chaos in the Massachusetts Senate right now, as some have suggested. Where do you guys come down? Well, I mean, I think for me, it depends on how you measure it. If you're looking at it in terms of legislative output, you don't see much of a difference between the House and the Senate right now. They're both kind of working at the same pace. If you're looking at it in terms of who do I go to if I want to meet with the president, that's a that's a different story. There's definitely a degree of uncertainty around the Senate. There's some turnover. There's the leadership changes. But they are still, you know, progressing ahead legislatively. When you talk about hearing chatter, are you hearing that from people who are senators, Senate staffers, or is it more people on the outside, people in the House, lobbyists? I think you, you hear it both. I certainly have, have heard from people in the building who kind of want to go back to normal. You knew who was the Senate president one day to the next, who could kind of focus on their policy priorities that they want to pursue. Mike, does that jive with what you have seen over the past yeah, few years? Yeah, I'd say so. It's not necessarily chaos at this point. I think the big reason behind that is because Karen Spilka, the incoming Senate president, is the Ways and Means chairwoman. Uh, if it was any other senator, it would be a lot more chaotic, I think. But you know, it is budget season. This is the time of year where the Ways and Means chair really becomes the key figure on both the House and Senate side in a big, big way. Still second to the, to the, the Senate president. Is it overstating it to say that Karen Spilka – has been working for a little while now to try to get Harriet Chandler to step aside more quickly than she would be inclined to? Or is that an outside-the-building misreading? It, well, we, we've, been, we've heard so many different things about what Chandler's intentions were. Uh, initially, she said that she was going to stay until January and that the next Senate president will be selected at the next scheduled election when the session starts in January 2019. That was what everyone kind of agreed on when they um, promoted – when you know, the, the Democratic caucus promoted Chandler to become full-fledged Senate president instead of just acting president. Uh, then Spilka came out and said, well, I have the votes to do it. And she immediately turned Chandler into a lame duck by saying she has those 25 votes to succeed her. And the question became, well, why not just do it now? And that, that's really the heart of the chaos question that you're getting at. Um, it's, it's one of timing and lame duck status. But I would say that the two of them are working together well enough that um, they're avoiding the you know, kind of violent chaos that you could have. Yeah, I mean, in, in retrospect, the day the bad news for Stan Rosenberg came down that his now estranged husband was involved in several accusations of inappropriate sexual conduct. You know, since then, I, I think there's a really legitimate question as to how relevant the state Senate is 
at this moment? And my answer would be it's not particularly relevant. And I think that Spilka pushing Chandler aside and being an expert in the budget because of the, the time of season may not for the institution be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I also wonder, too, because the press corps up here is primarily male, I just don't think the transition within the Senate has been covered as aggressively as if it would be men. Well, I think really one of the things that's different about this transition, um, aside from the fact that a woman-to-woman power transition on Beacon Hill in of itself is unusual, one reason people are talking about it differently is because it is so unique. You know, you had Chandler step up at a time where she was pretty straightforward. She harbored no ambitions to be right. Senate president. She stepped in because she felt someone needed to kind of provide a steady hand. And of course, as, as you mentioned, Peter, it's played out on a very condensed time frame much earlier than it usually does. And, you know, we've had even two of the people who'd voiced interest in the position leave for other jobs. There's been a we lot. We remind me, Linda Dressina Forey and I'm blanking on uh, Eileen Donahue. Donahue. Oh, right. Eileen Donahue. Yeah. Future Lowell City Manager. Well, in a low-key way, it, it does speak to the influence of the body. I mean, first of all, the, the, the House naturally has the constitutional power over the budget. You know, the, the House acts with more discipline, whether people like it or not. And the Senate, to me, seems politically out of touch, being in favor of some really wonderful progressive ideas that there's no money to pay for. I think more importantly here is the fact that you simply have a, a more liberal Senate and a more conservative House, which aligns with the governor. It's it's just, you know, the two out of That's three. That's true. The House is closer to the governor. Uh, and so if, if one of the big three is going to be on the outs, it's going to be, you know, the, the Senate. Um, and, you know, Peter's right that they have those kind of progressive priorities in tow, and it's very difficult to get those tax bills through. And if we remember, one of the first things that Stan Rosenberg did was a, a, like a, a bloody parliamentary fight over yeah, what right. was and wasn't a, a tax bill. What we saw in the Rosenberg years, and it remains to be seen whether or not Spilka will continue this, is to really build the case for all of these progressive policies so that when the time comes for the House to act, and they will, should the Speaker say, okay, we really got to get down to nitty gritty on um, health care, they got a health care plan. If we really got to restructure Chapter 70, education funding for you know, municipalities, they got a plan for that. The Senate is ready to roll at, at, a, at the drop of a hat. Uh, and, and I don't know if that was Rosenberg's master plan was to get the advocacy community to push the House to pass these bills. But I don't know if Karen Spilka is going to do that either. I mean, and that was something Senate President Rosenberg always kind of favored was that think big approach. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in a way, because he knew, you know, we might only have one shot to do, say, one health care bill. Do you think, Katie, that I'm being too cynical in my take on the Senate? I don't know. I mean, I think you, you have to come down to results. Yeah. Yeah. So before we turn away from the Senate, I got to ask you two, what are people saying up here about the upcoming Brian Hefner uh, arraignment and trial that's going to follow. He is scheduled to be arraigned, I think, on April 24th. Is that the subject of a lot of chatter 
on Beacon Hill or not? I haven't honestly haven't heard that much about it. It's um, it's similar to the the uh, Brian Joyce trial that's you know uh, upcoming and will probably be a, a circus of some kind or, or another. Um, will these be distractions from lawmaking when it comes down to it? Yeah, probably. But honestly, there hasn't been a, a ton of chatter because in this building, everyone is they're, they're just mindful of their budget line items this time of year. Yeah, my hunch is that the Joyce trial is really something that's going to be of more significance. The Joyce thing is so classic Howie Carr, hackerama, right. And how can a single senator have conducted such a scam for so long? And, you know, I wonder, will people equate it with how could the state police troops E and F get away with what they did for so long? That's interesting. It seems like the Hafner situation is unique. You know, the husband yeah. of the Senate president. And it's easier for me, and I'm, I'm not hinting here that I have any inside knowledge. It is easier for me to imagine that a lawmaker or two or a top aide or two might have been aware of some of what Hefner was doing and not acted on it because on a personal level, the dynamics were just so kind of awkward and uncomfortable and delicate. So that's why I find myself wondering if that might be a listening more anxiety. I'm not basing that on any knowledge, just imagining how those two situations might have played out. No, but take the two drug lab testing scandals. How can this stuff go on undetected for so long? Yeah, I have a question about the House and that really remarkable moment from a few weeks back when you had uh, Rep. Diana DiZoglio and Rep. Angela Scotia calling out Bob DeLeo, the speaker from the floor of the House. He wasn't in the chamber at the time, right, if, if memory serves? As Representative Scotia pointed out yeah. several times Which when he crazy. asked the speaker to come into the chamber over and over again. So... Did that have any kind of lasting effect, or has that just kind of faded away and been forgotten? I mean, I'm sure it hasn't been forgotten. It was a very kind of notable thing to have the dean of the house standing on the floor, almost taunting the speaker in a sing-song way. One really important dynamic there is that Rep. Scotia has, for a long time, not been Speaker DeLeo's biggest fan. He is a critic of the speaker and his power. Um, the criticisms aren't taken with the same weight as they might be if they were people who were, you know, longtime loyal backers of Speaker DeLeo. Has there been right. any? In, oh, Mike, I, I think oh, yeah, I was just going to agree agreed. with most of what, you know, what Katie is saying here um, and also just point out that the, the entire reason for her speech was an amendment to uh, the House's new sexual harassment policy. DeZoglio's amendment wanted to ban the use of nondisclosure agreements, uh, and she used herself as an example because when she was wrongfully terminated uh, in the kind of the aftermath of a semi-scandal, she was subject to an NDA that she broke on the floor. That was part of the drama of her speech there. However, I don't think that you really saw too much support for that amendment. The merits of what she was asking for wasn't really there. And as soon as her speech was over, you had uh, woman after woman after woman from Claire Cronin to Sarah Peake uh, just standing up and saying, I, un- I know what she's saying. I understand what her message is and uh, what this moment is. However, the actual piece of legislation that she's asking for is kind of nonsense. Yeah. And I've talked to a few people as well who are really, really adamant about the fact that they don't want the, the non-disclosure question and that kind of dramatic moment on the floor to overshadow the sexual harassment rules that they adopted, which, you know, passed unanimously. Everyone kind of celebrated. Listen, this Me Too thing is not going to be bottled up. I mean, I feel 
even silly having just called it the Me Too thing. It's real. But to get back to Speaker DeLeo in, in this mini revolt, I think people inside the building may not appreciate what this showed the larger public. It basically revealed the degree of sham that goes on at the House, that it's basically the Speaker decides what happens, period. And I think that's what this made very clear. The very fact that a two-person revolt was greeted with, you know, oh, my God, my hair's on fire. Yeah, yeah. and to that point, you have to remember, you know, DeZoglio's running for Senate. She's not going to be in the House next session. I think it's very important. She's, you know, a lame duck herself. Um, She announced for um, Senator Ives' seat only a very short time after she gave that speech. A week or so, right? Yeah, something like that. And, and um, she, I think she expected to either challenge Senator Ives or to succeed her should she retire, and the latter happened. Peter, I know you had another question you wanted to run by these two before well, you and I truck back to Brighton. What is it? Yeah, I, I was really struck by the rape kit provision. Basically, that there are hundreds of untested rape kits throughout the state. And uh, a provision is being made saying that moving forward, everything has to be tested within 180 days. I was shocked by that. I mean, how does something like that not get addressed? I I wouldn't be surprised if it comes down to funding, like everything else. Um, These are, you know, state-run crime labs that need to be funded. If there is a backlog, it's because they don't have the staff or they don't have the hours to get through that backlog, and that makes – that's money. Uh, And – you know, you can really do a, a direct or mostly direct line from any problem in state government to a lack of funds. And, you know, you can paint ideolo- ideology onto that and say, well, there's waste or we have to cut, we have to tax more or whatever. It's simply there's a line item somewhere that would address that backlog that it probably hasn't been funded the way it used to get funded and they haven't been able to hire crime lab technicians and that's why you got a backlog. Yeah, I will say too, um, my understanding is also definitely that it's a, a resource resource issue and that Massachusetts is, is certainly not alone on untested uh, rape kit backlogs is somewhat of a, a national problem that I think there's probably not an awareness of until someone maybe an advocate, someone with personal experience maybe brings it to a lawmaker and says, hey, this is my story. This is something that Brad Jones, the minority leader, yes. the House minority leader, has been working on for years and he's been trying to get it into – Every germane bill that's come across the House floor, he's tried to get this amendment in for three, four years now. Um, and this criminal justice omnibus bill was the, the right vehicle for it. But yeah, it, it definitely goes to show you if, if there's a price tag on it, it doesn't matter how uh, noble or, or even necessary it may be in the minds of most people or how reasonable it sounds. Uh, if there's a price tag, it's going to be a hard pass. So when are we going to know what is in the final version and what isn't? And when are we going to see this maybe signed into law? Well, I guess the the question is the governor can return it with an amendment. He can offer his own ideas. um, And, you know, we're still kind of waiting to hear what his plan is going to be. He didn't say. I asked him if he had a lot to say. He didn't have any to say. From my conversations with other Republicans, people who are kind of of, of the same law and order stripe as Charlie Baker, they suggest he's going to determine that the good outweighs the bad in the bill. Um, so I, I would expect a, a rather large bill signing ceremony pretty soon. Yeah, and I think you, you make a good point there. It was months of work to get to this point, but, you know, Charlie Baker is going to be the one who signs this into law. He's going to be attached to it from this point out. Mm-hmm. Which is not necessarily a bad thing as he seeks re-election this fall. 
right. nice yeah. building, right? Yeah. All right. We will leave it there. Katie Lannon from Statehouse News Service, thank you for joining us. By the way, can you tell people where they can find you on social media if they want to follow your work? Yeah. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Katie Lannon, L-A-N-N-A-N. Um, and, of course, all my stories will be on statehousenews.com, which is a subscription site. Mike Dean, how do people find you and how do they hear you on the radio? Uh, you can tune in to WGBH News 89.7 FM here on uh, WGBHnews.org. And I am on Twitter at, at Dean, D-E-E-H-A-N. And you're on with Joe Matthew. What time again? Quarter to eight. Quarter to eight. 7.45 on Monday. A prime slot. It's not bad. Peter Kadzis, thanks, by the way, uh, Mike and Katie, for taking the time to do this. Peter Kadzis, I think longtime listeners know you are at Kadzis. I'm at Riley Adam. Thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, please subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't already. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. <laughs>